Welcome to the Lodge. You've accessed the LodgeCast experience. Warning, warning. Dangerous spoilers ahead. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another deeply prestigious episode of Lockdown Hot Takes. I'm your Lodge Master. With me as always is Brother Bishke. News on the march. And Brother Lucas. Rosebud. And for the very first time, the most prestigious lodger I could think of, it's Brother Motherfucking Seth. Hey, longtime listener, first time caller. It's so good to have you on finally. You've given us your insight on what it chapter two and <laughs> Terminator <laughs> Terminator Dark Fate. But wow. now we have the full enchilada. You're here with us, and we're gonna be talking Fincher, y'all. For it for the hour. <laughs> yes. For the, for the entire hour, we're talking about Fincher. This is fresh air. We've been taking a lot of temperature lately. We're like, oh, this is our first Ron Howard. Oh, this is our first Vince Vaughn. This is our first David Fincher. Mm. And I need to know what the temperature is in the room. Let's start with you, Seth. What is your history with David Fincher? I'm a, I, I wanted to say up to this podcast that I was a Fincher, Fincher fan. But then I mm. looked at the filmography and I would say now I'm kind of back and forth on, on modern Fincher. Huh. Sure. I loved Seven when I was a teenager. I I am a, a fan of the game. Fight Club was a big one for me and, and Bishki long, oh, yeah. long time yes. ago. <laughs> so so we, many we had a year it with just Fight the right Club. age. <laughs> yeah, just the right age. We had a big year with Fight Club. I remember nineteen ninety nine, and then it fell off after a while. I think Zodiac was a, a, a trivia here. A, this is. A, a podcast we started, or it was abortive, but it was a first podcast. So it was a movie podcast we started around Zodiac, if you remember. Oh, David. that's oh, right. Wow. That's right. Yeah. It was a one-off. They, they had podcasts back then? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Believe it. Pioneers. Believe it. We were like pioneers. a one-day podcast, yeah. And then there are Peaks and Valleys. I think Social Network I'm fond of, although I haven't seen it in a while. And then I'm kind of like, uh, jury's out on the poplet adaptations, like Dragon Tattoo mm-hmm. and Gone Girl. Forgot sure. about Dragon Tattoo. And uh, a fan of the Netflix show, um, the stuff that he's doing, and here I am. So it's kind of peaks and valleys with Fincher. I, I'm a fan of his of him as a craftsman, still. Sure, sure. I think we can all agree on that, no matter where yeah. our allegiances lie with his individual projects. What about you, boys? Hothead, I assume you're either completely in or you think the man is overrated. I'm guessing you're completely in, but I can't quite read your face. Uh no, I'm I'm on the same exact boat as brother Seth here. I'm I'm a really? big uh I'm a big early period Fincher lover. Um the 90s are great. And then there's this big dry spell for me until Zodiac, which I think is a masterpiece and It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, like four bo- four bones because you know the original script was like not what the final movie was. Um, so it was interesting how they kind of like did a true crime procedural and tried to keep it like as close to the facts as possible, which might not make for a very exciting, uh, (laughs) you know, thrilling, uh, film adventure, but it can be very rewarding if, if you kind of study it on like an intellectual level. Yeah. When when he goes procedural, he goes procedural. Yeah, I think yeah. Fincher's great when when he's with like crime or dark crime, but but yeah, the later the other stuff like like uh 
Panic Room or Benjamin Button, like count me out. I'll never ever revisit it, like not interested. And uh, yeah, the girl with the dragon tattoo, I know a lot of people love, but I just rewatched it uh, recently this year. Oh, wow. And I, I fucking fell off my couch when I discovered that the runtime for that movie <laughs> is two hours, 36 minutes. Yeah. Ooh. Like the last, the last 30 minutes to, is brutal. I yeah. think Titanic was shorter. I'm not 100%, but I, I would bet $5 Titanic was shorter, maybe. Omniscient editorial note. Not even fucking close. I think I took my mom to that in the theater <laughs> on Christmas Day. Strange choice. Right. I think the runtime there was blunted that it by the fact it was a Christmas movie, too, and you're kind of willing to be in a theater sure. at Christmas and... I forgot Not that talking though, yeah. to your relatives. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Well, Bishki, do you have any hot takes about Fincher before we get to the latest slab of prestige? Pretty similar to these guys. Seven and, and Fight Club are four bones. For me, Fight Club has just, you know, changed your life when you're that age. <laughs> and um, For sure, it did. It changed it our did. lives. Yeah, but then, <laughs> yeah. but then in the 2000s, um, I always look forward to his movies and we're, some mm -hmm. I think are kind of overrated, but some I like a lot. I actually like Gone Girl quite a bit, um, but I was excited for this one. I'm always excited. He's been gone since Gone Girl, and he's back mm. with Mank. Well, he's gone to you because you don't watch television. Uh, yeah, he's doing Mindhunter, which I don't watch. But I'm not going to break the mold here. One of my favorite memories of, of my entire film-going existence is seeing Seven in the theater as you know a 15-year-old. And the the theater was packed, and this woman was with her boyfriend sitting next to me, like shoulder to shoulder. And it's that scene in the hallway where they're they're tracking down John Doe, and they see him in the distance, and then suddenly there's that loud gun pop, mm -hmm. and she turned to grab me instead of her boyfriend, <laughs> and I never felt cooler in my entire life. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, not a problem, ma'am. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> that actually reminded me of my seven theatrical story, which I was also like 14 or 15. And it was in uh, Santa Cruz, California. And I was at Scotts Valley Cinema 6. And it was a double feature. It was Carl Franklin's The Devil in a Blue Dress was the first mm. film. Mm. Yep. And then that. seven yep. was second. And and so by the time we got into the like the back half of set seven, it was kind of late at night. And, you know, the theater was also packed. I was with my friend Justin and his mom. And when it got to the sin of sloth, you're mm -hmm. looking at the big screen. I remember sitting there thinking like, gosh, you know, the guy in the bed looks like he's still alive because the sheet's moving up and down, like he's breathing. <laughs> yeah. But then like everyone in the scene starts acting like he's gone and he's dead and they're all like talking. Uh -huh. And so everyone in the theater relaxes like, oh, okay, he's dead. Yeah. And then as soon as he starts coughing, I jumped out of my seat and like got up and like left the theater. Like I took a little walk like in the theater lobby and then like came back yeah. in and like sat down and finished it. And I was just like, yeah, take yeah. a little breather. Yeah. Riveted. Yeah. I, I would make a point about seven uh, before going in is that uh, he he's one of those rare directors that kind of got a do over for his first film. I mean, we yeah, have not talked true. about alien three and I, I think, no. it, and it's funny how I didn't, I do have it down, but seven really is his, full-blown David Fincher first film, you know, I yes. don't think a lot of people really think of Alien 3 as something that's of his, like, auteur-ish 
voice, right? Um, but he has an Alien 3 reunion with Charles Dance, who plays William Randolph I was, <laughs> was going to throw that nugget out when I In bank, about yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was good. It all comes full circle. Yeah. So... Let's get into this, guys. I mean, we could we could probably talk about Seven and Fight Club for five hours, but we have a big steaming chunk of mank to deal with here. Yes. And it is on Netflix. Is that correct? We watched this on Netflix? Yeah, Netflix. Correct. Netflix movie. Netflix, where good directors go to die. <laughs> it is boldly black and white. And from the opening credits, you can tell that this is just pure period cinematic filmmaking porn for him. Can I ask you guys right there on that point? Because it is a point. Is that affecting yeah. you guys? Does that make sense as a creative choice? Like, does it matter that it was black and white, mono soundtrack, period? I feel, like, yeah. I feel like with Fincher, because he is, like we mentioned, so methodical, it was exciting to me because I knew it wasn't just going to be mere pastiche. I knew he was going to go all in for this, and I sure. knew money was no object. Mm -hmm. if, it was some, if it was pretty much anybody else, I would just be like, oh, this is just imitation. Like, what kind of gimmick is this? It would feel like a gimmick. But to me, I was just like, oh, shit, that's what we're doing. That's yep. just, it's all part of the package. I, I was trying to decipher if I really thought it looked like you could close your eyes and open your eyes and see it was something that was maybe possibly <laughs> made in 1940, or if that black and white looked like a digital movie to me. Uh, like, I was trying to also think about it as just like, okay, did he have to make a Citizen Kane companion <laughs> right. like it was shot in 1940 made with the same, you know, I was thinking about it a lot as I watched it. I thought the saying. sound was like the most distracting. I mean, I, I knew going in that it was like Soderbergh's the good German aesthetic and that's fine. I get that. But like the sound for me was shocking. Like somehow you, you get zero <laughs> awareness about what he's doing sound wise or sound design wise. And so, yeah, when they start talking, it sounds like they're in the middle of a soundstage with no insulation. Yeah, there's a reverb. It's like, there's a well, reverb. Yeah. this is how we're talking. We're going to yeah. do it this way. Yeah. Oh, I love, I loved that shit. I, I, I love the it. sound. I, yeah. I was like, if you're going to do this, go all the way. Go down to the molecules. Go down yeah. to the bones of it. You got to play it through. But the thing that kind of bugs me about it is Fincher is so addicted to technology that the real magic trick would be use use your billions of dollars that you have at your disposal here with Netflix and only use the materials that they would have had back then. That's what I was like, don't, thinking. Don't create yeah. everything in CG and yeah. like try to pass it off as old. Even though I think he does a good job, it would be much more thrilling if you knew that he didn't have all that shit going on. Yeah, it does right? have kind of a digital polish to me. Um, I That's think what I felt. I thought I thought that um, you know had he shot it on film and maybe even like film stocks that you know made it a little a little grittier, um, it could have been more effective visually. He can't allow himself to do that. It needs to be the cleanest base. No, I know uh, image, and then he needs to fuck it up in post, like and digital cigarette. He, he burns. won't allow it. Oh, the same, well, <laughs> yes. that was the real changes. Yeah, that was the second thing I noticed was he had him time down to the minute, and it was like, okay, yeah. dude, like that was a little silly. He that has, was a little silly. He has the cue markers for the real changes up in the right hand corner, very clearly, 
And I was like, oh, maybe he'll just do it once as like a nod. But nope, <laughs> he goes through throughout the whole movie. You see the real change. It was the Fight Club throwback. Yeah, that's a bordering on obnoxious because it's just like yeah. post production. I'm going to do this every you know what every 20 minutes or something. It's like okay, <laughs> where does that you know how does that help? the experience of everything else to me, just to have the cigarette burns. But, you know, I was willing to forgive it because, you know, everything else seems like it's of the time. There's this snappy banter and like we mentioned the sound and Gary Oldman to give uh, Fincher credit. He is playing a man in his thirties and forties through most of this movie. And they could have Irishman the shit out of that man, and they didn't touch his face. They didn't touch his body. He's just Gary Oldman. Yeah, it's surprising it never came up. We're talking about the director of Benjamin Button. It's ravages of alcoholism. I mean, I guess it's like his liver that's bad. My mom had the same gripe with Judy Garland that Renee Zellweger played. It's like, yeah, it's just not... You need someone that's age-appropriate or at least looks like they're dying of alcoholism. But with Gary Oldman, like... If your performance is good enough, which I think it is in this, like I do too, yeah, he, it feels yeah. it feels like he's just put you're putting on a comfy old hat that fits just right when he ambles onto the screen, and I am just happy that they didn't fuck with him. Like Fincher puts his CG elsewhere, and Gary was probably like, "Keep that shit off my face." I saw what they did to De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I agree with this. I I, I was thinking about uh, the general trend towards de aging and the possibilities there, uh, and and we get into the cast. We talk about what Gary Oldman can. No one has. A cultural understanding what Louis or not Louis B. Mayer, I'll get to him, but um, what Mankiewicz looks like. So to me, right. when we're talking about, yeah, I can get understand you're talking about 1930 to 1940, 34 to 40. There's a gap there. I wasn't thinking about his age. I wasn't thinking about what he looked like. I had no sure. point of reference for Mankiewicz. I was getting him mixed up with Tom Mankiewicz, honestly, guys, writer of Superman. Right. I was, I was, you know, like <laughs> I, I, there's so many Mankiewicz's, you know, there's Ben, you yeah. know, so ben to me, yeah. to me, just Gary Oldman embodying this person in time was fine. I, and I thought mm. the performance kind of shot through it. If the performance is good enough, I think you can play any age, you know, I still haven't seen Kevin Spacey play, you know, 17 year old Bobby Darren and beyond the sea, <laughs> Yeah, but ooh, ooh. I'm going to guess that he did a great job. Speaking of Spacey, he was originally, when Fincher was going to do this in, in the two, early 2000s, Spacey was going to be Mank. Oh, I believe it. What could have been? What do you guys think about the music? <laughs> There's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. A lot of wall to wall. There's like a wall to wall score, I think. Right. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Reznor and Ross pivoting. Oh shit! Was that them? I didn't fucking know. Yes. I mean, Fincher is now dedicated to. I'm pretty sure. I mean, he's not really all over Mindhunter, but like, I'm a big fan of Reznor Ross, and I thought like the best thing about with Fincher is that he's pushes. Resner, I, I think like I don't know if uh, if Res, I think Resner would still be doing Nine Inch Nails like as like you know reunion <laughs> tour five here if sure. it wasn't for Fincher saying I want you to do Social Network I, and and finally get into soundtrack work which I thought was always yeah. something that was there with with Nine Inch Nails but but anyway I think that this is an interesting you know it's like it's a straight up 
of the period score. Very interesting. I didn't even hear the telltale uh, closer beat anywhere, Hooks. you know? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no synthesizer anywhere near, yeah. We have Amanda Seyfried in the cast. What do you guys think about Amanda Seyfried? She's doing the full-on... Bronx, uh, Mole, M-O-L-L. I'm still not sold on her. I mean, we talked about, um, what's that Schrader film? First Reformed. First, First Reformed, Reformed. And, I, and I wasn't sold <laughs> with her there. I'm not sold that she, like, you know, to embody, like, an old Hollywood actress takes some special gravitas or something. And I don't, I don't I'm not sure Bisky's I was totally invoking s- gravitas. What's I'm going not, on here? I'm not sure she was, she had it um, mm. the, in the way that Mank, you know, Oldman had it or some of the other actors had it, like the the guy who plays William Randolph. We, should, and- we should talk about the cast because I think that this, the, it is headed by, it is headed by uh, Oldman for sure, and Oldman in another yeah. universe post twenty twenty would have been like he he's got to be an Oscar contender for this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if we're really thinking 110,000%. about what one hundred yeah and ten thousand percent yeah, um, and I do think that he holds the movie together. I think if you're thinking about just the performance, like as this kind of gravitational pull, he is the the pivot, right? But like it's give and take for me. I think Seyfried is right. is lighter on the lighter side for me, but then there are people like Charles dance who comes through like crazy as hearse is yeah. malevolence. That's just like, Whoa, where have you been all my life, man? <laughs> you know, and I know he's been in exactly. game of Thrones, but I'm, I'm not, you know, it's like, Whoa, he's back. And people like, uh, Arliss Howard kind of came through, um, almost caricature, yeah. but you know, I he was think Louis as, be mayor, yeah. right. Uh, whoever played Thalberg, but I, I, I would say that there. what's interesting about Fincher is he could go A-list and sometimes has. But if you look at the cast, I couldn't tell. I was looking at Louis B. Mayer and I thought it was someone famous under heavy makeup. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, oh, wait, that's our, yeah. Upton Sinclair is played by Bill Nye, the science guy. Yes, that, <laughs> this is that not, tidbit. This is not right. conventional casting, right, people. Right, right, right. <laughs> you don't see his face, though. The Orson, whoever played Orson Welles wasn't a fan. Hmm. Okay. I was actually thinking in a weird way that could have been someone that was, I'm not saying like Jack Black, but somebody that was actually more Jack well-known. Black. No, I, I, thought <laughs> he, I thought he was, it was kind of a character of him, but his voice, I thought he nailed the voice, don't you think? Yeah, the voice, but it felt to me like there could have been a personality on top of it a little bit more. Maybe someone that we know. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty small role. I think, yeah. I think part of it is how that role was written too, because the whole, we haven't really touched on the plot of this. The whole movie is basically all of the events and milieu leading up to the creation of Citizen Kane. And it's Gary Oldman trying to write this script under heavy duress after being in a car accident and drinking himself into a super stupor. And it all kind of comes around where Oldman has agreed to not take credit for his own screenplay, giving Orson the credit, but then he changes his mind when everybody is like, this is the best thing you've ever done. You need to take credit. And there is just this switch with their relationship when he does ask Orson to give him credit and Orson just like flips out where (laughs) I don't, I don't know if that like plays into the dislike of the character or just this huge mood swing that happens but it is i felt like that part of the movie was a little underbaked like i could have i could have yeah. dealt with a lot more uh of their relationship rather than just having orson be like this 
mystical figure floating around the fringes. Yeah. I mean, that brings it back to, and I highly recommend anyone that's going to see this movie to read Pauline Kael's Raising Cain essay, which this movie is highly based upon. Um, it's about 100 pages. Which has been debunked, um, for the record, which has been well, completely debunked. Well, Uh-oh. not completely debunked. Yeah, I'll, this I'll, this movie's a fraud. No, no, I've been pl- politely <laughs> listening to you guys wax poetic on it. And this movie is a, this movie's a failure. This movie is a failure, and it, it's a failure mainly because... Here he is. David Fincher's daddy, Jack Fincher, wrote the screenplay Mank based off Pauline Kael's essay, which was discredited. Like, I'll send you the link. It's a whole video breaking it down, but it blows my mind that David Fincher thinks he's like dying on this hill saying like, well, actually, Citizen Kane wasn't Orson Welles. It was Herman Mankiewicz. And I'm thinking, wait a second, Makowitz shot the movie and like cast all the parts and cut it together. No. And like, and so it's like, it's, it's, no, no, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting hill to die on that there's this co-authorship, right? But then you find out later that Pauline Kael like stole some research from some other writer who was like, no, actually Orson Welles and Mank were writing scripts simultaneously and then Welles put them together. And that's completely omitted from the Pauline Kael essay. It's completely omitted from the film. It's it's mind boggling to me because to me. Makes about like, don't believe the fake news. It's not just Orson Welles. But the irony is it is fake news. It is only Orson Welles. So you're a fucking fraud. Like you have no objectivity. <laughs> you're you're sucking your dad's, you know, legacy dick. And I'm not on board. Like <laughs> no, I'm not I'm on board. Back. I'm push back. And, and, no, no, wait. I got one more. I got one more thing. Okay. There's there. Hashtag we, legacy dick. We, we, we mentioned Paul Schrader earlier and the dude tweeted, Mank the film fails the first obligation of telling the story of a flawed protagonist to convince the viewer that this character merits two hours of their time. And in this case, over two hours. Did we invite Paul Schrader on the show? Because I don't think we did. And it's all just like a circle jerk for Mank. And it's like, why the fuck should I care about Gary Oldman lying in bed, dictating the script as if he's shitting out his breakfast? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on all of that, but uh, I knew this was gonna be a contentious podcast. We, um, you know, Kale definitely made some grave errors in her research, but she had I a think, personal vendetta against Orson Welles because yeah, he was no, more she was just trying to say that it was a collaborative effort and that a lot of the script belonged to to Mankiewicz in terms of especially in the first draft, which that was the movie shows. It's not saying that. Orson didn't have any feedback. Right, he turned in a 350-page first draft. Yeah, he turned in a massive first draft, and then Orson and some other guys cut it down. I don't think that's the crux of the movie in terms of... I'll I'll tell you why the movie's a failure. I'll tell you exactly (laughs) when you know the movie's been swimming naked this whole time. It's the emotional climax of the film at the very, towards the back half... William Randolph Hearst is having some circus safari themed dinner party at San Simeon and Herman Mankiewicz shows up drunk to rowl up all the blue blood, you know, fucking hoity toity bourgeoisie assholes. And he's eviscerating everybody. And we're supposed to be like, oh, my God, he's burning all his bridges. This is career suicide. You're supposed to, like, feel something there. And instead, it's like a balloon kind of just deflating like Okay, Fincher shot that scene a hundred times. He nailed it. Yeah. Um, that's where the crux of the movie is. Like the in the early going, when it's kind of a wise cracking Hollywood behind the scenes thing, 
I was kind of not on board. I was kind of like, this is kind of a biopic. I was really, but once it gets to the thing where it kind of gets into Mankiewicz's uh, wanting to kind of get revenge on both Louis B. Mayer and William Randolph Hearst, that's when I thought the, re- the story really hit the hit its stride and where the themes really came out. And that's where, you know, we kind of lead to that climax in San Simeon uh, where Mankiewicz just rips into William Randolph Hearst and into Louis B. Mayer. And then, and that, I think that's the, the peak of the film for me, I was very into it at that point. I guess, you know, when we, we weren't all there, but. It is interesting though, to note that a large portion of the center of this movie follows the California governor race between Frank Miriam and Upton Sinclair, <clears throat> Bill Nye, the science guy. And <laughs> it basically creates for us this early fake news system Residence where they're making, with, yeah. pro- mm-hmm. they're making propaganda films. And yes, it's resonating hugely with right now and all the propaganda fake news networks of today. And what the hothead is crying out and demanding that we acknowledge, and I Paul want to Paul and Kale's full of shit. Paul and Kale's full of shit, and I like Paul and Kale. Is that he decries this entire film as fake news, and the hypocrisy is too much for the young boy to take. It, it Correct. Is, it is Correct. Ta- tearing him Correct. asunder. It is tearing him Correct. asunder. Correct. Nobody at Netflix gave Fincher notes. No executives gave him notes on anything. No one pushed back on anything. And this is what you get. This is exactly what you get. Like a movie that no one is going to finish except us because it's our duty to. The question is, does it matter? No, I mean, the the importance is the story. Even if it's not totally factual in terms of what it's doing, you know, there's a lot of anecdotes that were from the essay that are just kind of interspersed throughout the movie without their context. But it's like, does the, do, do you, you know, feel that Gary Oldman's, character and his, you know, sort of revenge on, on William Randolph Hearst is an effective storytelling. I don't think the, the, the factualness of it is, is such a thing that just, you know, negates the whole movie. I don't know. The truthiness. I, I think I would probably jump off what Dave is saying there, where it's, it's, it, there's a Fantasia quality to it. I, I never really watched it as something that should be necessarily taken as like a Zodiac-esque, like, dissection of, of reality uh, where it's... But a lot of people will. That's How really many people really people. are invested watching on a night, Friday night at Netflix <laughs> on, on just, you know, the ins and outs of Citizen Kane's origins? You know, it's like... I, also I'm a not, good point. I, and, and I'm not... Lucas, I am not disregarding what you're saying. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on this. And I do think that, like, if, he, if Fincher was trying to do that, I, I don't know if he was. I think there is this weird fantasy golden era type of thing happening around one of the, the greatest film made in that Hollywood era for me. And that's a bold stance to take, Seth, to say that Citizen Kane is one of the best movies ever made. You're going out on a limb. It is four bones. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. It's Agreed. a four bone movie. I was just thinking about the tone of it and I thought the tone was still kind of Fantasia. And so I, I some of these things where we're talking about the ins and outs of what actually happened. I don't know if that was Fincher's goal. The farther away it recedes into history, the more it is just open to legend and interpretation. Is that not so? Yeah. Lucas ain't having it, folks. <laughs> I, I would like to see Lucas's nuance in the movie, though. And 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 I, I think more of a, 
presence with Orson Welles in that yeah. in the movie would have been like you were saying, Matt, earlier, a, a little bit more meat on that bone. Yeah, I agree. I actually thought the only scenes I perked up was when it was Orson Welles, William Randolph Hearst, or Louis B. Mayer. If you don't have those three guys, you're dead in the water. <laughs> I was a fan of seeing Thalberg too, who is a kind Thalberg, of under, yeah. you know, like I've got to say a lot of what helped me here was this, you must remember this podcast was yeah. really helped me as the a MGM stories this era. And, yeah. Um, I knew every, who everyone was. I even understood that that was um, Barrymore there at the pay cut scene. Oh, right. Know? And, and, and I was like, okay, I had a sense Shirley of who Temple. these people were. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, I, I, I wasn't sure if that was Shirley Temple. I was like, yeah, that was sure. that. But was. yeah, yeah. The scene where I really perked up was when they showed Mank playing cribbage because I used to play cribbage obsessively as a young lad, as a mad lad. And then I just went cold turkey. So I feel like I have this like crazy Jason Bourne cribbage ability that's just locked away. That's just waiting for this like perfect moment to explode out of me. Just letting you guys know. If we're going to get into little bits I liked, I liked the writer's room scene as well. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where that where that fell, but I liked the... I liked the energy in that scene. Yeah, Lucas, where where does your other love and light lie? There has it's a long movie. There has to be any something else. Love you and like. light for old Hollywood here. <laughs> I love I love yeah the golden age of Hollywood and and like the pre code films and the, the the you know post code films and I love Citizen Kane. I love the magnificent Ambersons. I love the lady from Shanghai. I love uh, Orson Welles's Othello and Macbeth. Like I love the man. Like I, so I am a little biased and de- and protective and and like defensive when I feel his legacy is being like completely you know attacked by Fincher and his dead dad. <laughs> but watching it, it, it just felt like man, Fincher is really leaning hard into his post production to really like make this better than it is. You know, I thought, man, if you didn't have the editing for this or like the cigarette burns, like this would be unwatchable. Like this would absolutely, if this was just a color traditionally shot movie, like you wouldn't get through it. You wouldn't finish it. But because he's working so hard at like creating the Orson Welles imagery, that's the only thing that can kind of keep you going because you're you're looking at all the homages and little winks to the setups, you know, from Citizen Kane or, or what have you in, in this film. It just to me is all flat like it just none of it lands. And I'm, I'm just like spinning my wheels. It's like waiting for Orson Welles to show up or waiting for William Randolph Hearst to show up or whatever. Yeah, I, I got to ask you guys, what do you think the theme is here? If, if, we're, if we, we talked about like. It being compliant with 2020 fake news, making a stand at some on some level, um, you know, because there is that back and forth in time between the younger Mank, the older Mank, yeah. the hatchet job that might be Citizen Kane. You know, like what is the theme that's coming out of that? And it, I, I felt ultimately, I'm coming around to where Lucas is, but in a different way, kind of from another angle. It's just like I don't know if I really got a strong message out of the movie at the end of the day. Um, and I ultimately, it felt like a companion piece of Citizen Kane. And I don't know if I'm feeling it stands alone as something that uh, really resonates with me at the end yeah, of the day. I think for me, it was, it was, it was Mank kind of getting his revenge. He was kind of like in the 30s, better than maybe what he was working on. And he was just, and he was right. just frustrated with you know, he had some kind of these, you know, with the Upton Sinclair stuff, had these kind of socialist ideals. I really liked the the 1934 election night 
that brought yeah, back great. like the the celebration of of Upton Sinclair losing. Like we all know what that feels. like. We got that PTSD <laughs> yeah. ringing in our heads, and uh, Mank just getting absolutely shit faced. And that was where he was kind of <laughs> like, I I want to do, I want vengeance on these people. Like this is not what I stand for. And that was the theme of the movie to me. Like he was like, I'm, I know I've been friends with them forever, but these people are not my ideals and I'm going to take a stand as an artist. And so I hear what you're saying. I think a strong third pillar in that movie, I'm thinking of Mank. I'm thinking of Hearst, a strong third pillar would have been more Orson Welles. I think I'm, I'm it's still true. feeling that there mm-hmm. needed to be, it needs to be shorn up there a little bit because you get one scene at the end and you're like, where were you the whole movie? Yeah. Yeah. He was writing his script. He was writing his Citizen Kane script <laughs> that, that Jack could- Fincher forgot to put in his script that David Fincher right. never even shot. Jack Fincher's a genius. I think there's only one thing left to do, and that's go to these prestigious, controversial mank bones. All right. Oh, man. Stepping on these uh, Jehovah floor tiles here. Where do we start? Um, (laughs) Seth, we'd love having you here. This is great. Kick us off. All right. I'm going to say, looking at what I've thought about and and the discussion's been helpful with this, I (laughs) Fincher runs cold for me. Uh, Maybe I don't know if he ever has been really, like, I think he tried to be kind of a warmer heart more heartfelt director with Benjamin Button it didn't work for me <laughs> <No>. <laughs> at all so going still still just totally cold steely with Zodiac was like that's Fincher in the raw you know um a movie like this seems like a, somewhat of a cerebral exercise at the end of the day for me so I was watching it with a detachment the whole time I never really other than Oldman um yeah. and some of the performances I felt this kind of just dissection of the time. I felt this kind of companion piece feeling to or, to mm-hmm. Citizen Kane, and I could not get beyond that necessarily. I just couldn't get into it. So I am going to say, if it were, well, we're doing bone count four, four, four. I, I you can only go to it, four. <laughs> I can only, in good conscience, for me, give it two and a half right now. Add a boy, two it's and a gut. half bones. You got you got to play the bones from the gut or from the heart. Either one is is just fine. Let's go to Brother Bishke. What do you got going on here? Yeah, I was uh, a little worried on in the early going. I thought it was going to be a biopic, which you know I don't like those. You don't like musical biopics? You don't like any biopics? Mostly not any biopics, but... Mm-hmm. We but, are in the same boat from years, for years. We have yeah, been in the same yeah. boat. Biopics. What about Amadeus, though? No, Amadeus. Yeah, what about <laughs> Amadeus Bishke? What about Amadeus Bishke? As Tom Cruise says, Amadeus is the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, but um, yeah, Amadeus is four bones. Anyway. Um, Good. But then it eventually kicked into, I guess, the main plot of the movie, maybe like a, a third into it. And that's when, you know, I saw the potential for, you know, some really good storytelling and some just really good Gary Oldman bravado performance. Like I just love Gary Oldman. Oldman. He can do it all. And, um, you know, some of the other performances were hit and miss for me, but, but Gary Oldman just carries the thing. And I'm a huge Pauline Kael fan. 
I, uh, <laughs> I will, I will fight for her to the end, even if her <laughs> research methods are questionable at times. Um, and you know, it's more about, I mean, she's telling a story in her essay and this movie, basically Jack Fincher's adapting that kind of, um, and I want the ghost of Pauline Kale to visit you this Christmas Eve. No, I dream about have her. A nice I chat. dream about her. But, um, <laughs> but you know, Gary Oldman's going to get nominated for best actor. I thought the guy who plays Hearst and Louis B. Mayer were great. Lily Collins, we never talked about her. I thought she was good as the uh, oh, yeah. secretary. It looked incredible, like every Fincher film. Like, you know, once you got into this, the style of it, the lighting, San Simeon, which they definitely weren't allowed to shoot at. They did not shoot at the Hearst Castle. They, oh, it's it's digitally constructed. I watched all the uh Yeah, the they VFX built all that. They had, some, they had some digi giraffes, <laughs> which were not too good. But other than that, it looked great. Um, but it was during the dark. It was it was at night in black and white, and that covers all of the uh, digital animal sins for digi, me. Digi yeah, elephants. But anyways, yeah. I was struggling through the first third, but I thought it really picked up in the, in the second two thirds, and that's what really, really matters. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> Oldman carried it for me. I'm going to give it three bones. I, uh, Boom. I I really thought that it was a pretty good Fincher film. There it is. Three bones from the Santa hat wearing, beer swilling Brother Bishki. Now let's go to the blazing, raging hothead. What do you got? <laughs> what do you got for Mank? Uh, <clears throat> mank stank. <laughs> no mank you. Get the mank out of here. Go mank yourself. <laughs> um yeah man listen uh there's a lot of power in linear chronology if you were thinking like mm. if, if a movie is like sex uh-oh you know your 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 opening scene or your cold open is a is a look you know it's like eye contact <laughs> and then your first act is like engagement and talking and then the end of act one you start flirting and then in like you know the middle of act two you start to do a little foreplay and then you get to the midpoint and oh your clothes are off you're seeing each other's naked bodies Ooh. oh boy and then all of a sudden wait i gotta run to the bathroom because i, I gotta i gotta like make sure you know uh my pipes are clean or i got i got nothing leaking uh you go to the bathroom that's your low point oh my and then, god and then you come out of, and, then, and then you and then you come out of the bathroom ready to fuck and that is yeah. your climax that is the beginning of act three and you go in the bedroom and you slam the Wait, door being ready to fuck and, is and, the you, climax. And, and you and you crank up the tunes <laughs> and then the final you know act of the movie is you just you pow, strike up like, the band just plowing that field until boom <laughs> end credits the end fireworks and people are just like their heads are spinning right <laughs> now now if you're if you're going against that right if you're doing what david fincher uh -huh. does in mank you're doing what Brother Seth said, which is the Citizen Kane companion piece where it's going to be nonlinear. We're going to be jumping yeah. back and forth through time. So every scene doesn't matter. Reverse because, missionary. Because the next scene doesn't have anything to do with the scene you just saw. So there is no buildup of tension. There's no release. There's no climax. It's just like yes. chop, 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 back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. And, and, and really the heart of the film is this platonic friendship between Herman Mankiewicz and and uh, 
Amanda Sidfried, Marion Davies, who, 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 yeah, who plays Marion Davies, and and it's supposed to be devastating when he gives her the script and she reads it and she's like, oh my god, Mank, you can't, you can't do this. Like I'm asking you as like a friend, please don't do this. And he's like, well, it's showbiz, lady, I got to. <laughs> oh, that's not what happened and, in the movie. And, and but your heart, go and, on. Your heart <laughs> and your heart's supposed to break. It's not remotely, like, what happened in like the movie? Like your heart, your heart is supposed to break because he's like betraying her. He's like betraying no, his friendship. That's not what happened. It's that's not, not, not what happened. It's not there. It's not there. Like, there's nothing there. There's no hook to hang your hat on. Like, everything, nothing about it works. Like, it's in service of his dad's script, which is, like, licking the boot Your research is as spotty of, as Pauline Kale. Of, of Pauline Kale. describing scenes that didn't even happen. Okay, so there was not a scene where Man of Seed sat down with him and was, like, trying to talk him out of it and saying, hey, you should, you should rethink this. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt Daddy, Daddy Warbucks or whatever his name is. She never said that to him. She tried to talk him out of it, but he didn't say that's Hollywood, sweetheart. They had a mutual oh, understanding. All right, all right. All right. OK, OK. We're going to we're going to just argue over minutia and semantics. OK, sorry. Whatever. My point <laughs> you is. You said it's the whole point of the movie. <laughs> no, I said that's the emotional core of the movie. And we should feel devastated when he just ignores her and is like, I'm taking credit. I'm doing it. And it's just. It's one bone, man. This is one bone. Like maybe there's a story here about about Mankiewicz and Wells writing the script simultaneously and getting to the beginning of production and then it ends there. And William Randolph Hearst and Louis B. Mayer and all these people are are, are like in the background. But dude, Fincher is not the Coen brothers. Like Hale Caesar already has done this, I feel, and better because they know how to do satire and humor and yeah. like make things entertaining yeah. and engaging. Yeah. Whereas Fincher is the most fucking humorless motherfucker this side of the <laughs> Mason Dixon and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, like he just doesn't get it. Like it's, it's a waste. I was laughing quite a bit. I don't know, but this, this is your bone. This is your bone. And one bone is pretty, pretty generous LT considering how, how much fire and fury. There is a story there. There is a concept here. I believe in it, but this is not the execution. This is not Fincher. the way to, to get it. Fincher always gets one bone technically for if I, if I were to like, just, Put it yeah. out there, like just an automatic bone. It's, 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 one, it's one bone for the editing. Honestly, that's all I'm giving it for. Is the his cutter just cut the shit out of it? <laughs> <laughs> all right, quite the bone spread, folks. Well, I don't know how many people are going to sit around the Netflix this uh, holiday season and imbibe on the full uh, meal that is Mank. Very I few, very few. I don't think they're going to get past maybe the opening credits. Yeah, they were burnt on the Irishman last year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the Irishman of this year. <laughs> Sitting down with your dad at the Irishman on Thanksgiving oh, pretty no. much destroyed that. But I have to say, like, questionable truthiness aside, as a movie, I was, I was fully on board. I was engrossed. I was loving every minute of it. I was loving all the performances. I didn't I didn't have any problems with any performances. I loved Gary Oldman doing his thing. And the only thing that I felt being the weakness was, we've discussed it already, Orson Welles just being a mystical supporting cipher. And I feel like if if maybe some of these questions of what actually went down and the controversy over that had been addressed and that his role had been bolstered a bit, I might go higher, but I'm pretty fucking high on this at three and a half bones, y'all. Nice. So wow. the highest. I loved it. I loved it. Oldman. That's God where damn. we're at. I mean, he, he won for his Winston Churchill, but this is what he should have won for. Like, this yeah. is the one. <laughs> if they didn't give it to him for tiptoes, 
they need to, <laughs> they still need to make up for that as well. So yeah. they should have given him best actor for Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. I agree. That is like yeah. that I know is that's king, contentious. That is the king heavyweight performance of Gary Oldman. Like I'm, if you know if you make, know I his work, heads that, or tails of that movie. But, that that yeah. is an epic performance. The fact that we're all just throwing out hot Gary Oldman performances shows that it's good that we live on the same earth. As the man Gary. can do anything. The man can do anything. Yeah. In a funny twist of fate, he's going to win the Irving Thalberg award one day. I'm sure. Of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure of it. Yeah. If, and if the it. Oscars continue to exist, which they very well may not, uh, that will happen someday. So brother Seth, thank you so much for finally uh, being on the show. It's an honor guys. I, I have been waiting for a while. I'm a lo- I love the show. And uh, I listen to it first in the queue whenever it comes up. Oh, so this is great. oh that warms the cockles of our hearts. It and, does. Uh, yeah, in, anything you get passionate about that you see coming down the pike, whether it be VOD nonsense or uh, big studio drop onto VOD nonsense, you let sure. us know. We'll when it gets on the radar, I'll, I'll throw it out to you guys. All right, boys. Big bone spread on Mank. Looking forward to seeing if anybody watches it based on this. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just want all my listeners out there to hit me up in the comments and say, you stand with Brother Lucas. All your hothead hotties. Just comment with one bone. Just hit me up with the one bone emoji in our Instagram. Bam. Love and light, Tinseltown. Good night. Love and light. So happy to say that officially. Valentino suddenly appeared in his midnight blue tuxedo. He had a falcon on his shoulder, eating chicken from his hand. And Fatty Arbuckle waddled by on his way to the bathhouse green. And Frankenstein ate the leading lady and licked the carcass clean. Up in Xanadu, diamonds fell like rain. You're sucking your dad's, you know, legacy dick, and I'm not on board.